0: Please join me now in prayer. God of love and peace, you have commanded us to love one another, to live in your love and bear fruit. Let your love be shed deep in our hearts as your word is proclaimed among us. Open our eyes that we might see the evidence of your love around us. Open our ears that we might hear the song of love you sing to us. Open our hearts that in seeing your love and hearing your song, we might be changed into new and loving people. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. A reading from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 62, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Albert Einstein was one of the most formidable intellects of the 20th century. And in 1914, Einstein presented his wife, Maleva Maric, the following list of expectations. Conditions. A. You will make sure that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. That I will receive my three meals regularly in my room that my bedroom and study are kept neat, and especially that my desk is left for my use only. B, you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego sitting at my, my sitting at home with you. You will forego my going out or traveling with you. And C, you will obey the following points in your relations with me. You will not expect any intimacy from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. You will stop talking to me if I request it. You will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I request it. Albert Einstein was a genius, but he stunk at relationships. (laughs) And they got divorced. You know... Marriage is such a broken institution because it always involves damaged, broken, sinful people like us, uh, constantly maneuvering for power or influence or to get our way or to make sure our voice is heard, always looking out for ourselves. It's, 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 it's so damaged. And today we're going to ask what difference the gospel makes. Two weeks ago, we talked about Christian friendship. And in so doing, we were really talking some about marriage because your spouse needs to be your friend. Last week, we talked about sexuality kind of through the grid of my own testimony. And in so doing, we were talking some about, about marriage. Uh, this week, we're talking about marriage. And next week, we're talking about gospel-centered parenting. So that's also going to be a whole lot about marriage. Uh, what difference does the gospel make when you're actually trying to navigate an intimate, lifelong relationship with somebody to whom God has called you to be in union? What kind of, of vision for gospel marriage do we see in the Christian scriptures? We're going to try to answer some of that question by looking at a letter from St. Paul in the first century, which he wrote to a church in Ephesus, uh, modern-day Turkey. It was It was part of Greece at the time, a Greek city. So we're going to look at Ephesians. We're going to read chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 21 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord submit to one another out of reverence for Christ wives submit to your husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the savior now as the church submits to Christ also wives should submit to their husbands in everything and husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in this same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. What we see here is that marriage is not about personal self-fulfillment. It is about self-sacrifice. It's the opposite of our our cultural assumption it's not about personal you know uh, uh, self gratification it's about self sacrifice he calls it mutual submission and that that verse 21 he says you know, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. So he's going to talk about what a submissive husband looks like and he's going to talk about what a submissive wife looks like. Nobody gets a pass on submission. It's a charge for all followers of Jesus to submit ourselves to one another in all of our relationships. What this means, you know, submission is, 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 is the Greek term meaning to put yourself under them instead of lording it over them. And the Greek here is continual. Paul is saying be continually putting yourselves under each other, fighting not over the crown, but fighting over the towel, just as Jesus washed our feet, that we would be fighting to wash one another's feet. And specifically, he says to do this out of a Christ-centered motivation. He says do it out of reverence for Christ. Uh, you know, you don't just yield or surrender or, or, or put yourself under someone when you agree with them. That's not submission. That's just you happen to agree with them. It's a specifically when you disagree, when, when your perspective is different. He's saying, I want you all arguing to, to get the lowest position, taking the lowest seat at the table so that Jesus can then move you up. It's about self-sacrifice. It's about mutual submission. And he talks about what a mutually submissive husband looks like. Uh, he says in verse 23, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then later on, he clarifies what that looks like. Being a submissive husband in verse 33, says he says it means each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. This means sacrificing your sleep to get up at 2 a.m. to change a diaper so your spouse doesn't have to. It means sacrificing your time to be at your daughter's recital. Means sacrificing your hobbies and your interests to be at your wife's award ceremony on the night you usually hang out with your friends. It means playing the bad cop so that your wife doesn't have to do all of the correction in the house. Uh, Once you have kids, it means sacrificing your cool factor to drive a minivan and carry a diaper bag. It means sacrificing your career advancement instead of abandoning your family while you go build your business. It means sacrificing a lot of personal control around the house because it's not just your home. And at some point, your little princess is going to grab the remote during the Super Bowl's most important play. Uh, You know, I asked Christian women what what they longed for most in their husbands. What, what, when they saw it, brought them the greatest joy, and what is it that maybe is not there, but they really long for it. And I'm going to share some of what I heard uh, as I asked, and some of you are very progressive, you know, women. Some of you are, don't fit the typical PCA complementary and mold. but even some of you who are way out feminists, you know, the most common thing I, I heard is, I wish he would be more of a spiritual leader. I want them initiating private devotions. I want them saying, hey, let's pray. Let's go through the Bible. Let's get to church. Let's invest more deeply. Let's live more missionally for people who aren't in our family for their sake. This is what I'm I'm hearing. Uh, I want a strong spiritual leader encouraging us in devotions and an active prayer life. I want forethought and intentionality, integrity and a faithfulness to God and family and church. I want them to work hard at these things. I want him to be listening and attempting to understand. I, wanna, I want him to be able to fight fair and to be a leader in regard to praying and Bible reading and household as a family, leading, the prayer in, 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 leading us in prayer and Bible. I appreciate a husband who cuts me slack for my shortcomings and thanks me for the things I do well. I know he makes an effort to understand my personality and how my upbringing shapes the way I feel and speak and act. I look for a sacrificial attitude toward those outside of our immediate family being united in missional living. Uh, I I, I want an equal workload, not just letting me as a wife pick up the largest share of the work in the home when I'm also trying to navigate my own career. I long for integrity. I want him to prioritize his relationship with God and become gentle. I want to feel like we're a team, not like I'm the maid. I want him to ask questions like, like, What can I do to help you thrive? How can we lighten your load? How can I make sure you get a Sabbath break while raising kids who require 24-7 care, even on the Sabbath? I think we all value a husband who's gentle, but not passive. Like, if I want to go with a friend to a conference in Kansas City, I want him to not just say, okay, sure. I want him to say, no, this sounds like a good thing. This could be really healthy for you. And, and let's look at the finances. And, and maybe we won't be able to send you this year. But, but if not, then let's try to figure out how to get you there next year. And I'll watch the kids. I want to feel seen and valued. I want a husband who prays over me, who recognizes my strength and my gifts and encourages me in the journey. I want him to see me and hear me and initiate open com- communication between us. I want to see servant leadership, especially in following Jesus. And I want to see the willingness and the humility to listen well to thoughts and feelings. I want to see spiritual and emotional maturity, someone who knows how to apologize. I want someone whose life shows the marks of the Spirit, the patience, the humility, the gentleness, and who has heavily invested in his church. I want to be valued as a being with insights, perspective, and value of my own. I want to seek what is unique about... I want to see what's unique about my voice and my perspective. I want to be treated as an equal. Most of all, I want him to be pure in heart, with a heart that merely loves Longing to be grafted together in Christ and in each other and and living together in what that actually means. Do you hear it? It's a longing for Jesus. I want to see Jesus in my husband. That's what Paul is talking about when when he challenges us guys. I've had guys break down when they hear lists like that because they, they see how massively they fail to measure up in so many areas and yet that's still the challenge, an impossible challenge to Christian men. To be husbands who love your wives as Jesus loved the church, giving yourself up for her as Jesus gave himself up for you. That's a submissive husband. What's a submissive wife look like? Paul says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then just as before, he then clarifies what specifically he means by that in verse 33 saying, The wife must respect her husband. To respect the husband. uh, You know, wives, if I could just talk to you for a minute, because I watch my brothers. And some of them are trying really, really hard and some of them maybe not so hard. But I watch my brothers and wives... When you, I know you don't mean to, but when you put down your husband, especially in front of other people, when you mock him, or you roll your eyes at him, or you tell him he's an idiot, you might as well be shoving a dagger between his ribs, because the effect is the same. Paul knew some married folks, and when he talks about mutual submission, he stresses for the married woman her, her call from Jesus to give respect to an imperfect husband, to speak well of him, to honor him, to be concerned about his reputation, to try to make him look better than he is. And to do that unto the Lord, not because he is worthy, but because Jesus is. Because your husband, he's going to drop the ball. He's a sinner too. You know, what are the things that make a guy feel most disrespected? Um, it's going to vary from guy to guy, but but in general, I think you could safely say that 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 we men don't always handle criticism as well as we might, particularly where it involves our performance. If I'm at your house and I'm setting the dining room table before dinner and I'm putting the fork on the wrong side, don't tell me, you're doing it wrong! You know, if that's going to make me feel about a half inch tall. No, if, if you need to correct me, then do it gently. Hey, Greg, can I show you how I learned to do it? Sure, I want to learn. Uh, You know, it it buffers the criticism. I mean, obviously, if you and your spouse are going to have any emotional intimacy, you have to be able to tell him when something he does keeps hurting you. you. You can't assume men can read minds because we're terrible at that. We don't have the EQ that you might have or that you might long for us to have. You have to tell him. But if you tell him he's an uncaring and inconsiderate loaf, then his feelings of, of disrespect are going to be right on top of all your feelings of hurt. And, and, you know, but if you come to him and you say, you know, Annie, there's something I'm hesitant to bring up, but I feel at some point we need to talk about it. Um, yeah, I don't know how to say it or whether to say it, but but there's something that happened that made me feel really, really bad. Um, yeah. And then he's going to say, what is it? And then he's going to, like, compel you to share. Uh, you know, and talk about how it affected him but do it with with humility. And and, and, and if he he responds with grief and sorrow and love and compassion, thank him for that. And affirm how caring his response was. Give him respect. It means getting into a habit of affirming your spouse when you see something admirable or well done. We tend to get confused whenever we talk about leadership in marriage just as both husband and wife have a role in mutually submitting, they also have exercise leadership in different ways, and yet Paul does emphasize here the, the man as head of the marriage, and that does not mean that he's the boss who makes all the important decisions, because the biblical wife in the Old Testament sees a field and asks her husband... No, no, she sees the field and she buys it. You know, she, she is a decision maker. A wife is an image of God, just like, just like a husband. Uh, everybody provides some level of intentionality here. But he is making a point that a husband who gets the gospel is going to accept a certain responsibility to provide spiritual leadership. Um, that's different from abuse. Leadership is taking the initiative to say, hey, let's pray about this. Leadership is being the first one to repent the first one to seek reconciliation, the first one to make amends. Uh, Leadership says, hey, you're not doing well. Let's let's talk about this. Help me understand. Uh, Leadership is saying, hey, let's read through Luke's gospel together this month. Uh, You know, if you have a marriage where one partner always has to ask permission and always gets their decisions reviewed and they live in fear of their spouse, you're not really talking about spiritual leadership. You're talking about an unhealthy marriage dynamic. Uh, the biblical wife, you know, uh, uh, has an incredible freedom. Uh, it's not about who makes decisions. But Paul is saying that a marriage is closest to being right when a husband selflessly chooses to put his wife's well-being above his own and when the wife respects her husband for it. That's a beautiful dance. That's not leadership in the form of the office or a factory. That's leadership in the sense of leadership on the dance floor, where you got somebody who knows how to lead and somebody who knows how to follow, and together they're having the time of their lives. It's beautiful, friends, because the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. The purpose of marriage is to make you a better Christian. Um, Jesus says, for example, in the gospel, that, that being a Christian looks like picking up your cross every single day and dying. And that's marriage on a certain level. You go through periods in your marriage where you feel like you are dying inside, constantly crucifying your self-will to make you more and more aware of Jesus who did that for you. If you're doing it right, it won't always be easy. I watch you guys, I've been doing this for 25 years in this church, watching some of you struggle in your marriages. And some of them, sometimes it feels so one-sided, one of you working so hard and the other one just callous. And that kills me inside to watch you go through this. But, But Jesus talks about dying. And if you're willing to learn, marriage has the ability to teach us how to love. It teaches you to be patient when God gives you a spouse who is slower than you are. Christ uses it to develop in you kindness toward a fallen sinner like yourself. It's supposed to grind away our tendency to boast, break down our self-righteous anger, train us to keep no record of wrongs. It's designed to teach you to trust, to train you to protect, to grow your ability to persevere through hardship. That's what Paul describes as love in 1 Corinthians 13. Martin Luther lived single as a monk, and he says it was nowhere near as difficult being in a monastery with a bunch of other men than being married to one woman named Katharina. He said it's God's school of discipleship. There's nothing like marriage to show us how sinful we are. And a gospel vision for marriage is is saying, I'm not just going to love you now, but 50 years from now. I'm going to be the one who changes your diapers and empties your bedpan. I'm going to be the one sitting at your side until the very end. It's the opposite of our culture's vision of self-fulfillment. One study theorizes that as people... Have abandoned religious institutions they 've started expecting romantic relationships to satisfy a host of needs that people used to look to God to fulfill. We expect a relationship to give us transcendence. We expect it to give us unconditional love. We expect a relationship to make us feel whole and meaningful and worthy and, and to give us communion, you know things that, that God alone can give. Uh, uh, one article in first things says it this way. It says the Western fixation on romantic love creates a crushing burden for mere mortals. It engenders a powerful myth regarding love and dating and marriage that a fallible human partner can not only share our passions, but sate our existential yearnings. Contemporary couples expect much more from marriage than it can realistically deliver. As Ellie Finkel of Northwestern University observes, quote, most of us will be kind of shocked by how many expectations and needs we've piled on top of this one relationship. Friends, you didn't marry Jesus. And you're not going to marry Jesus. There's no way one man or one woman will ever be able to make you fulfilled. They weren't designed for that. Those feelings of romantic infatuation at the front end of a relationship seldom last more than a year or two at most. They're just there to give you enough time to get into something deeper and more committed, namely marriage. If you're thinking about getting married because you think your spouse will make you fulfilled, you might want to rethink whether you should be marrying. Because marriage does not make you happy. It makes you married. And should God bless you and lead you and provide opportunity for you, to marry. Do it because God will use marriage to help you die every day to your own sinful self-will and will help you experience the resurrection power of Christ in that brokenness. Marry a person who's going to encourage you to seek God in prayer, who wants to read and discuss the Bible with you. Somebody who's learning to do what God wants when they don't feel like it. Somebody who knows how to be a friend and how to persevere long-term in their relationship. Somebody who loves the Lord and loves His church. And then in this fallen world as God leads you through seasons of sorrow and hardship, through tears and through losses, you're both going to learn to pick up your crosses and you're both going to learn to pick each other up as together you follow Jesus every day, growing closer to Christ and to one another. There's nothing like a marriage to show you how selfish and unthoughtful and inconsiderate and egocentric and impatient and angry and judgmental and unloving a person you are. Well, Greg, you've just made a great argument for celibacy. If marriage involves so much dying to self, how is it a good thing? Friends, it's a good thing. Because marriage is all about this gospel cycle that we see in verses 25 to 33. A gospel cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance. He says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, presenting her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish holy and blameless. And then he does this weird thing. He says, uh, you know, in in all of this, he says, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and how he relates to his church because he sees you, his church. He sees you as a believer in all your nakedness and all your shame and all the stuff that's broken and everything that's wrong, your hopes, dreams, aspirations, and the stuff you don't want anybody to know about. And he sees all of it and he accepts you and embraces you completely and says, I see you in your nakedness. Full disclosure, and I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you or abandon you, not in this life, not in the age to come. That's full disclosure and complete acceptance. It's the gospel cycle. Uh, marriage, then, he turns around and says, oh, by the way, but it does apply to marriage because it's the same thing even before the fall even before we were broken or sinners before the fall god designed marriage to reflect the relationship between jesus and his church so that you can look at your spouse and 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 have full disclosure hiding nothing no secrets let me tell you everything that's going on inside of me and then have and receive and give complete acceptance not just now but till death do you part. And so marriage is by nature an evangelistic ministry. If God has called you into a marriage and you are a Christian, your main calling within that marriage is to be the one who ministers the gospel to your spouse's shame. Who builds them up, affirms and encourages. Not tearing down, not controlling, not criticizing. Uh, and guys, what this means in terms of full disclosure is you've got to open up and let her in. You've got to learn to process externally, not just internally. You've got to learn to open up to have the kind of relational intimacy. It's so beautiful to say, I know you, and I will never, ever leave you. That gospel cycle creates an emotional safety, uh, a place where intimacy can grow. Uh, you know, Paul references Genesis. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Uh, one flesh, that's a complete personal union of two people, economic, legal, personal emotional spiritual physical psychological union with shared goals and shared dreams and shared values and shared loyalties shared faith a shared story shared spirits woven into one a yin and a yang that together become greater than the sum of its parts it means you have to let your spouse in so that they can not hide from their toxic shame it's a gospel ministry, a gospel cycle, full disclosure, complete acceptance, and within marriage, the sex act becomes something of a sacrament of this relationship, uh, where we're physically you're, you're showing, you know, full disclosure and complete acceptance. Um, married sisters, married brothers, how are you doing? Is your marriage reflecting the gospel cycle of full disclosure and complete acceptance? Is your marriage creating an emotional, emotionally safe place? Are you, are you letting your spouse in or do you feel you need to hide? Are you comfortable being seen naked by your spouse, or do you need uh, to cover over shame? Do you feel safe in your spouse's arms? Do you need to hide even from them, or do you feel like you can let them in fully? Do you feel encouraged to initiate? Do you feel like you're able to share your likes and your dislikes, your hopes and your fears with your spouse? Do you believe your spouse when they compliment you? Full disclosure, complete acceptance. Are you putting the gospel to use in your family, in your marriage, letting it create real, lasting intimacy? It can create a safe place for this to grow, an emotional security where you can let them in. Um, in an article, Scott Sauls, a friend of mine down in Nashville, talked about an alternative to the culture war for Christians. He asked this, he said, what if we focused on renewing marriage inside the church first? Repenting of hardcore and softcore pornography habits, taking thoughts and fantasies captive that objectify the image of God, reducing divorces where there are no biblical grounds, and nurturing love and lingering conversation, hand-holding, fidelity, forgiveness, and living face-to-face in intimacy and also side-by-side in mission within our marriages. For unless and until we become this kind of countercultural community amongst ourselves, showing the light of Christ that is in us as well as telling it, any zeal for biblical marriage and chastity out there is going to fall on deaf ears. And, he adds, rightly so. Kay Warren talks about how she found herself in a marital hell. She shares her perspective on what it took to make her marriage healthy. She says this. She says, healing started to come but it was an agonizing process. I don't approach this subject, she writes, from the Hallmark card version of marriage, but from the blood, sweat, and tears of the trenches where our marriage was forged and is sustained. She writes, I know what it's like to choose to build our relationship, to seek marriage counseling again and again, to allow our small group and our family into our struggle, to determine one more time to say, Let's start over or please forgive me, I was wrong or harder, I forgive you. I know what it's like to admit that my way isn't the only way to see the world and to try to imagine what it's like to be on the other side of me, to choose to focus on what's good and right and honorable in my husband instead of what drives me crazy, to turn attraction to another man into attraction to my husband. I know what it's like to be cracked open by catastrophic grief, and to share it with my spouse when we're so different. She says, each of us is not who the other was looking for, but each of us is who the other desperately needed in order to become the person we are today. And yet it's also been the very best thing that has ever happened in my life to either one of us. We would not be who we are today without each other. The shrieks of iron sharpening iron have often sounded like gears grinding on bare metal, but the result has been profound personal growth in both of us. Hard work, perseverance. How is it possible to love a spouse in that way? Friends, that's how Jesus loves you. He gave himself up for you, Paul says, He's talking about the gospel cycle and he's saying it's true of how he views you as well. He loves you. He gave himself up for you. He's making you holy. He's cleansed you with the washing of the water of baptism and the word of God and its promises. He's going to present you to himself radiant and you're not going to have a single stain or a single wrinkle or a single other blemish. You ever know with a newborn I'm always fascinated. I want to know, are the earlobes attached or detached? How tiny are the fingernails? Do they have eyebrows yet? And, And then most importantly, I'm just amazed to look at them because they don't yet have a single freckle. And that's going to be you when God's finished with you. Radiant, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. That's how much Jesus loves you. In Jeffrey... Eugenides' novel, The Marriage Plot, there's a character, Mitchell, who moves to India as a young man to volunteer. And after a couple of weeks volunteering, he's faced with a man who has massively defecated in his own bed. And in the midst of the chaos, Mitchell suddenly cannot stand it one more second. And so Despite knowing he's going to regret it the rest of his life, he turns away from the wretch he should be taken care of. He runs out of the building. He scoops up his belongings and he escapes by train because he discovered that day there was something true and awful about himself. There were things he could not stand, depths into which he could not plunge. He discovered he had untested limits and that's not true for Jesus. He entered the human condition. Jesus came down from heaven and then down even further he pierced the saddest and lowest human conditions. He experienced grief and degradation and betrayal and torture and then he died in the worst possible way. His unimaginable physical pain accompanied by the mental and spiritual anguish of being abandoned by God the Father in our place. Taking the blame for you and for me so that we would be embraced by God's open arms of love and affection and commitment and loyalty. There is no darkness into which a human being can descend that Jesus has not already descended for us. It's the love of Jesus who gave himself up for you so you're going to be without blemish. See, we're all looking for a better marriage. Put yourself in the shoes of the young and in love. Think of all the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations and the longings that are bound up on your wedding day—brilliantly splendid white dress, you know, trail going out the back door, guy in a tux, all cleaned up, even shaved. You know, and and then and then what happens is you find yourself tiptoeing around your spouse's stinky underwear that they left on the floor again. You find yourself stepping barefoot on Legos and screaming at the top of your lungs. You wake up, you roll over, and at some point you think, oh, you're still here. You know, it's not what you thought you were signing up for. Every human spouse ultimately disappoints. Now, you can turn to your spouse and say, but not you, honey. I'll do it right now. Go ahead. Get it done with. But there is one who answers our human longings. So much more deeply because we're all looking for one who can validate our existence. One who who will join himself to us and make us one flesh part of his body. Verse 30, Paul says it's Jesus. We are members of his body. Jesus repeatedly describes himself as the church's bridegroom. The church is his bride. The apostles pick up the language which itself was an older image drawn from the Hebrew prophets as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So will your God rejoice over you. Can you can you hear him singing all of the hopes, all of the dreams as your, your Savior's laughter rejoices over you? All those aspirations of your wedding day find their fulfillment but not in your spouse in the true spouse jesus who loves you and pursues you and unites himself to you and who wants to capture your heart in 1630 john preston said it this way you are now bone of jesus bone and you are flesh of his flesh This longing. It's so deep in our humanity. It's so pervasive, a longing for a relationship in which we can be truly naked and loved, desired, accepted. We're seeking absolute validation for our souls, for our existence. And no partner is ever going to be able to do that. That's what Jesus came to do. You can't burden them with it. Burden Jesus. He takes it up willingly he offered himself up for you he loved you and gave himself up for you that's the savior full disclosure complete acceptance Naked before God and yet in Jesus clothed in an unremovable suit of forgiveness. Adorned with the righteousness of Jesus. He's going to present you in verse 26 as holy. That's double imputation. He's cleansed you with water. And he's clothing you with holiness and radiance. For the first time in your life you're going to be without staying holy and blameless. Because the gospel changes everything friends. The gospel can transform duty into relationship. The gospel can change heaviness into joy and performance into acceptance and resentment into forgiveness, law into love, and defensiveness into extravagance over one who is loved and cherished completely. I mean, how much time do we spend on our hair or our makeup Young women age 12, 13, 14, all the focus on clothes and on the iPhone and later in life. It's the focus on on what your neighbors are going to think about your house or about your yard. Uh, you know, how much time do we spend trying to cover up, trying to hide, trying to make ourselves acceptable to others and to God and maybe even to ourselves? And the gospel says you don't have to pretend anymore. Jesus was perfect for you. You don't have to have the perfect life or the perfect house. Uh, you know, last year's throw pillows are just going to be fine this year too. Uh, you don't have to have the perfect children or the perfect body or the perfect health or the perfectly clean car. Your heavenly Father sees the real you and he knows you in ways you don't know yourself. And if you belong to Jesus, he sees you as worthy and clothed in the holiness of his Son. And he's pleased when he looks upon you now. What marriage is trying imperfectly to tell us is that there's a relationship in which you can be truly naked and truly loved. Marriage is pointing to a greater partner who loved you and offered himself for you. We're all damaged. We don't feel ourselves worthy of love. Maybe we're not worthy of love, but you have a father in heaven who doesn't care about all that. He sees you. He loves you. And whatever it is that you are carrying, whatever burden it is, whatever shame it is, whatever humiliation it is, whatever loneliness or isolation you are feeling, friends, your Savior, Jesus, is looking upon you now and he is smiling in absolute delight because he sees it all, full disclosure and complete acceptance. It's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our true spouse. You are our bridegroom. You see everything and you'll love us, Lord. And so we give you thanks. Even as now we consecrate to you the elements on this table, we ask, Lord, that you would preach good news to us, your children. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.